Good afternoon, everyone. <coughs> For those of you who do not know me, my name's Bob Quinn, and I'm working here with um, Paul and Erin here at Ephraim House. I've just done the um, trek around the northwest, and um, Paul has graciously asked me if I would um, preach today, which is my privilege and my pleasure. While we were out on the um, out on the convention, um, Ike Gordon mentioned that um, his ch favourite chapter of the Bible was Romans chapter eight, and that is many people's favourite chapter of the Bible. In fact, it's been described as if you can imagine the Earth, the um, and Romans, the book of Romans, is like the Himalayas the rooftop of the world. And then Romans chapter 8 is like the Himalayas, the absolute pinnacle. And, and I think for that reason, many people love this chapter. And I think it's, uh, it's justified. But just so as to um, locate us where we are in the book of Romans... We just, we just want to we'll just do a quick um, survey of the context. Romans is a book that Paul wrote to these Roman Christians to introduce himself. He didn't know these people and he wanted to lay, lay down his credentials as an apostle. And so he starts off by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, for both Jews and Gentiles. For those. And, but first of all, before he can lay out the good news, he starts out by laying out the bad news. And so, verse, uh, verse um, 18 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind. And he talks about the pagans of the time and the terrible behaviour that they got up to. But then he said, but then in case people thought, well, I'm not like those pagans, I'm a pretty good fellow. He goes through in the beginning of chapter 2 to show how even those who think that they're good and upright are in fact also sinful and deserving of condemnation. And meanwhile, the Jews listening to this will be saying, yeah, that's right, all those, all those Gentiles, they're all pagan sinners, even the good guys, they're bad guys. And so then he, then he says, but you Jews, you have the law, and you break the law. And then he sum, summarises it in... in um, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. That's verse 18. There, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, by the law, we become conscious of sin. Basically, what he's doing is showing that everybody 
fall short of the glory of God. Everybody is a sinner deserving condemnation. He's given us the bad news so that we might actually sit up and take notice and listen to the good news. And so then we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and basically goes through to the end of chapter 5, where he talks about how it is that God justifies people through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. And that just, sometimes it's been said that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. But justification is actually far more than that. It's where God has given us his, Jesus' righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see a person who hasn't sinned. He sees a person who is righteous, doing everything right because he sees Jesus. That is the good news. So we're made right with God. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he talks about sanctification, how we are to live. We've died to the law. And some people say, great, I can do whatever I like, I'm dead to the law. And he says, no, we're not. We're, we're slaves. We're either slaves to sin as a master or slaves to God. One is a vindictive, evil Nasty master. One is loving and good and kind. In chapter 7, he tells us how there is a war within us. That we would love to do the right thing. We do want to do the right thing. But we find a principle in us that we do the wrong thing. We want to do the right thing and we do the wrong thing. The wrong thing that we know we shouldn't do is what we end up doing. And he, he comes basically to the end of his tether. And he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He keeps on returning back to Jesus Christ. Then he comes to Romans chapter 8. How are we to live the life that God wants us to live? <coughs> Through the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 is all, all about life in the Spirit. And that's, that brings us to where I want to, be, to go, is to read the last 12 verses of Romans. But I'll ask Lucy if she can come forward and if she will read for us Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. So Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great words of comfort. We, we recently um, had a neighbour of ours. He was, um, he'd been a good neighbour to us for a few years and hopefully we'd be a good neighbour to him. But um, he was struck down with an illness, with stomach cancer, and we went and visited him in hospital. And we wanted to leave something there for him. So we printed off Psalm 23 on one side of an A4 piece of paper and Romans 8, 36 to 39 on the other side of the piece of paper. And then we, then we laminated it so as that it would be there beside him because these words are so comforting. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for his the concern that people might know the riches of the gospel and what it brings to us, not because of anything that was owing to us, but because of your grace through your Son. Father, we want to be humbled before you. We want to listen to you. We want you to speak to us. Father, may your Holy Spirit be with us now to light up this word that he himself inspired. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8.28 One of those verses which a lot of people would say is my favourite verse in the Bible because it is so full of comfort. And it is. For we know that 
all things that no sorry for we know that in all things God works for the good. What a what a word what a word that is. That in all things God works for good. But there is something here which does make it rather exclusive. It's not a promise for every person. Not everybody can take this promise and say, yeah, that applies to me. First of all, it says, God works for the good of all those who love him. Who love God. There are lots of people in this world who cannot stand God. Who hate God. Who blaspheme against God. Who think that God is against them. And therefore they cannot take this promise to themselves. There's a further writer too. To those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. There are people who have been called by God for his purpose. So in this sermon today, it's going to be pretty simple. I've got two points. Who are the called and what are all things? And the first, uh, first question, who are the called, will be answered in verses 29 and 30. And what are all things will be answered in verses 31 to 39. So first of all, who are the called? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. There's that word called again. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We have here what's called the order of salvation and it goes from eternity to eternity. It starts off when God, with God before the creation of the world where he knows every person who, is, who has lived, is living and will live. And so what does it mean when he foreknew these people? He also loved these people. If you go back into, your, into the Old Testament, knowing is more than just an intellectual assent. Knowing is a sign of intimacy. If we go back to the creation we says that Adam knew Eve and they had a child. Nothing more intimate than that type of knowledge. And so God loved his people before all creation. So much so that he then 
predestines. He calls them to be his people. These people are then called internally. It's not an external call, it's an internal call. When God calls and people respond. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because elsewhere, like in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us that we are dead in sin. Dead people don't make decisions. We're, called, we're told that we are enemies of God and cannot love him. We are blind. We are blinded by the God of this age. And we must be given spiritual sight. We must be given the new birth by the Holy Spirit, as John says in John chapter 3. Before your first birth, were you alive? Could you make any decisions? Can you make anything at all? No, this was something which was done to you, for you. And so it is with the new birth. The Holy Spirit gives us life. And so when those who he's predestined, he then justifies as we've already said, that means that God gives us Jesus' righteousness. And it's something done in the past. What is interesting is that he says, and those he justified, he also glorified. Same tense. Past tense. For those of us who are called, we are already glorified it's not something in the future God has already so made sure that we will be glorified that it's already given past tense so those who are called are those that God has known he's been predestined called justified and glorified Now, this is meant to be a pastoral letter. This is to encourage. This is not to promote any type of arguing, contention. But over the years, it has done. So I'd just like to make a few applications before I go on. If we're predestined, does that mean that I have no part? No, we still have to believe when we hear of Jesus Christ being preached. For those of us who are believers, who trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, we are, we know that we are predestined. It may not know, we may not feel that beforehand, but if we look back, we will see how step by step, by step, by step, God was drawing him, drawing us to himself. 
If left to ourselves, we would never make that step. But God opened the way to us. If you're hearing me today and you at this stage do not trust in Jesus Christ, then I ask you, place your trust in Jesus. Otherwise, you're still back in Romans 1 to 3. A sinner condemned because of your own actions who needs to place your trust in Jesus Christ so that you might have that load of sin taken away from you and receive Jesus' righteousness which makes you right before God. In regard to evangelism, if God has foreknown his people, if God has predestined his people, if God will justify his people and if God will glorify people, that is a great encouragement to us to go out, to proclaim and to preach because we know that God has his people out there to hear the gospel to know and to be able to respond. So this is who are the called. What then are all the good things that God that works for our good? I'll start off a negative application. All the good things is not prosperity and not good health necessarily. Even if we just go back to verse if we go back to verse 26 in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for but the spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express he searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for us why do we pray Oftentimes because of difficulty or problems of trials. And we'll go through and now we'll have a look at what all things are. What shall we say in response to this? If we're already glorified, what are we going to say? Well, if God is for us and God is is for us who shall be against us this starts a series of questions who is against us um sorry my i should have my glasses with me <laughs> who will bring any charge against us who is there who condemns? Is there anybody against us? Well, yes, there are. There can be plenty of people who are against us. But what do we say? 
He who did not give his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he also along with him graciously give us all things? God the Father gave his own son. If you remember back in Genesis 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then just at the, mo- at the, at the moment when he was going to do so, he said, don't do it. Don't kill your own son. I know that you love me. Well, it got to that point for God the Father. And even before the cross, Jesus had cried in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me. This cup of the crucifixion. But not my will, but yours be done. Three times Jesus prayed that prayer. You know the heart of the Father must have been breaking to hear that prayer. But the prayer was never going to be answered. Yes, you can stop this. this. Because the only way that you and I could be restored to God was if Jesus drank that cup. If Jesus went to the cross and died for us. And if God did that, who is going to be against us? No one is going to succeed in being against us. Because God gave his only son for you and for me. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Or who will bring an accusation against us? We have an enemy, Satan. And you know what one of his, um, one of his names it means is the accuser. Or he will accuse us. If any of us are honest, we know that we may be Christians, but we're not perfect. And we still go against what we know God wants us to do. And Satan is there just waiting to accuse you. How can you be a Christian? How can you be a Christian and do that? Who has not heard that voice? I know I've heard that voice. Who will bring any accusation against us? It is God who justifies. It is God who has justified us. It is God who has made us righteous. It is God 
who when he looks at us, doesn't see our sin, but sees Jesus' righteousness. Oh, Satan can accuse as much as he likes. But we just have to say, God has justified me. The judge declares me innocent. The judge declares me right. All your accusations are null and void. Praise the Lord. Who is it that condemns? This is a difficult one. You know who it is who condemns people? It is God himself. He is the one who will judge and condemn. Ooh. Might God still condemn me? He goes on to say, Christ Jesus, who died, who paid the penalty for my sin, for your sin, he died to take those sins. More than that was raised to life. His resurrection showed that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Is at the right hand of the Father. That shows that he is glorified. He is at the right hand. He is ascended. And what is he doing there at God's right hand? And he is also interceding for us. The Father will not condemn us because the Son is interceding on our behalf. There is no condemnation because of what Jesus, the Son, has done. And then finally, the last who. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Maybe you might think to us, oh, yes, maybe I won't be charged. Maybe I won't be condemned. But can God love me? And then he goes through and gives us a list of things that people might think shows that God doesn't love us. Sure, trouble? If I'm having trouble, surely that shows that God is not that God does not love me. If he loves me, he would make sure I don't have any trouble. Or hardship? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? All of these things Paul had experienced in his own life. And he knew that God loved him. If we face any of these things, none of these things are going to separate us from the love of God. One thing that Paul hadn't at that stage 
um, experience was the sword. But he would. He would die by the sword. But that didn't mean that God didn't love him. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that remind you of Jesus, the lamb who was slaughtered? Did God not love Jesus? Of course he did. He loved us. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I was just reading about, about more than conquerors. It's actually, it could actually be translated, we are Superman. We are those who are like Superman. We cannot be conquered. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, whether we die or whether we live, neither of those things is going to separate us from the love of God. Neither present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else will separate us from God. One of the great things about the salvation that God gives us is it does not depend on you or I. It depends entirely Upon God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know why that's so comforting? These days we hear more and more that as we have an older ageing population, dementia is getting worse and worse. And as we can, people suffer from dementia, they lose their mind. Their, their personalities change. And some people who are nice people become argumentative, become changed. They forget things. They might even forget who their children are. If it was up to, if our salvation depended upon us, and that happened to us, would we feel secure in our Christian walk? What Paul is saying here is yes, we are secure. Yes, nothing, not even dementia, not even any of these things will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. Just over a year ago, um, we lost Lucy's brother. He had uh, bone cancer, which when, when it was diagnosed was too far gone to do any treatment. And we had to just sit with him as the pain grew worse, as the discomfort was, was such that whatever he position he was in, he was uncomfortable and in pain. His body was falling apart and dying. But even as his body was getting weaker and weaker, we could see his faith growing stronger and stronger. That's supernatural. That's what God does for us. And that's why people love this passage of the Bible. Do you love Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in him? If you do, then this promise of all things working out for good for us applies to us. What it means for all things to work together for good is that we will remain in Christ. Our eternal futures are secure and nothing will take us away from him. And if we have Christ, if we have God, if we know his love and we have that love for him, then the things of this earth is nothing in comparison. The love of Christ is all and in all. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Um, there'll be uh, dinner available for anyone who wants to.